Welcome to Profiles from WFIU. I'm Aaron Kane. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and public figures to get to know the stories behind their work. On this episode of Profiles, we feature an interview with Birch Bai, former United States Senator from Indiana. He died this week at the age of 91. Bai was the author of two constitutional amendments. The last politician who wrote more than one amendment was James Madison. Bai crafted the 25th Amendment, defining the rules of presidential succession, and the 26th Amendment that lowered the national voting age to 18. He was also co-author of Title IX, the 1972 legislation that ensured higher education access for women. Birch Bai was born in Terre Haute and raised on his grandparents' farm in Shirkyville, He graduated from Purdue University after spending two years in the Army. He served three terms in the United States Senate, representing Indiana from 1962 to 1980. Our radio TV executive director, Perry Metz, spoke with Birch Bayh in his Washington office in October of 2010. Senator, I've got a recording I'd like to play. I wonder if you recognize it. of our Hoosier state. For Indiana, he will do more than anyone has done before. So hey, look him over. He's your kind of guy. Send him to Washington on by. You can rely. In November, remember him at the polls. His name you can't pass by. Indiana's own Birch by. Hey, look him over. He's your kind of guy. Send him to Washington on by. You can rely. In November, What was the background? We had a problem. I was running all over the state, crazy, shaking hands with people. You know, I'd stand at a plant gate before daylight and shake hands with little Charlie as he came out. Hi, my name is Birch Bayh. I'd like to have you vote for Senate. The guy said, yeah, great. You're the first person to ever ask me for my vote. I'll vote for you, Bert. <laughs> well, B-A-Y-H does not make by. So they get in there looking for Bert Bai and this Birch Bay fellow. Whatever happened to my old friend Bert? <laughs> so we knew we had a problem. We had name recognition. And um, I was running against somebody who had been there for 18 years. Everybody knew him. Not everybody liked him. But um, we were riding along. I had a young man who dropped out of Rose Poly to, um, to basically show for me. He was my right hand. He did everything. Larry Conrad? No, Bob Henshaw. Okay. And Larry Conrad later on came on and was a campaign manager, he and Bob Boxall. And uh, we were riding along, and Fred Waring in the Pennsylvanian sang this uh, Wildcat, the song from Wildcat, he looked me over. And he said, you know, I think we ought to use this as a theme song. One historian says that's what won you the election. I, when you win it by two votes, appreciate <laughs> a lot of things. Won it by, I don't know how anything had a bigger impact than that did. Because whether you like it or not, the name Birch Bay, and it was a positive thing. You couldn't be angry. I wasn't saying bad things about anybody. And they had pictures of all the kinds of things. I don't know whether you've seen a clip or not, mm-hmm. but uh, it was the kind of thing, an old man throwing a kid up in the air, 
with the family and to, most importantly, it, the name got out there. It's Birch by Birch by. Now the fellow you beat was Homer Capehart, who'd it, been senator for 18 years yeah, right. mm -hmm. and was pretty well known throughout the state. What made you think as such a young man that you could beat him? I was foolhardy. <laughs> I never dreamed of being a United States senator. I mean, all my friends wanted me to wait two years to run for governor. That's the power center of, uh, of the state. I've heard that from another by. Well, it's true. A senator does not have the power and the authority that a governor has. Maybe shouldn't have. I mean, particularly as far as your friends are concerned, the patronage is all in the governor's office. I didn't want to be governor. I'd been in the state legislature for eight years. I was a legislative creature. I mean, I different than my son who had been a governor for eight years. Mm -hmm. I'd had a chance to be in legislature, been fairly successful there. But I learned the uh, art, if you want to call it an art, of uh, of putting together a group of people that have common goals that constitute a majority in the legislative body. And uh, that uh, bode me well when I got to the Senate, I think. I came in there as Churchill guy, and uh, like I said a while ago, you, run, you win an election by two votes per precinct. You, everybody's got bragging rights. I'm sure. With due cause. You arrived in Washington in late 1962 to, to set up business. What kind of place did you find it at that time? How would you describe it? It was a place filled with hope. John Kennedy was on the scene, the new frontier. People were tired of the old way of doing business, and he had a way of articulating it that, that was charming and yet persuasive. Uh, come on, let's get together and, and, and solve the problems that confront our country. That's the way it was when I got there for 10 months, I guess, a year or 10 months. And then he was taken from us, and Brenda Johnson came in. Different personality, but um, perhaps even greater skills uh, getting legislation passed. Uh, he, as a former legislator himself, having a lot of friends there and also having a familiarity with how the legislative process works. He was able to get legislation passed in a majestic way at a time when people wanted to get things done. They wanted to work together. We had Republicans and Democrats and we fought an election, but when the elections were over, we worked together to find a way to solve problems. Correct me if I'm wrong, didn't Lyndon Johnson take a shine to you and Marvella? Yes. Why? Well, I don't know. In December, uh, after we'd been elected, we came to Washington, spent a couple of days. I went around and saw all the 800-pound gorillas on the steering committee trying to introduce myself and ask them to put me on a couple of committees. And, um, and the last evening we were there, uh, the last stop was about 5.30 in the vice president's office. And we went in there, and there was the president. I think he had his vice president there. I think he had his shoes off. He got up and came over and said hello and gave Marvello a squeeze. And we sat there and visited maybe for an hour. We thought, you know, I felt embarrassed to take all that time. Mm. And finally he said, uh, what are you kids doing for dinner? I said, well, Mr. Vice President, we don't have any funds. Well, why don't you come on out to the house? He said, I'll, 
I'll call a cook and she'll put together some leftovers. <laughs> so he reached over, called her and said, we're going to have company for dinner. We went out and had dinner with him so at his home. And um, fast forward, I, I remember um, on the 14th of February, it happened to be Marvell's birthday. But the vice president didn't know that, and he had a Valentine's party. It must have been eight or ten people. I mean, it was a very small group of people, and somehow or other he invited us. And uh, I remember him coming over and saying, hmm, he said, you want to be on the Judiciary Committee, huh? I said, yes, Mr. Vice President. He said, well, I think you'll like the results of the vote tomorrow. The, steer <laughs> the steering committee was going to vote. You know? <laughs> <laughs> they said, hmm, you also want to be on the Public Works Committee? Well, yes, Mr. Vice President, that'd be wonderful. Hmm, I think you'll like the vote tomorrow. <laughs> it was clear that he had talked to Dick Russell, <laughs> his buddy on the steering committee, to take care of this young pup from Indiana. Pretty good. Uh, could it have been that uh, Marvello was from Oklahoma and he sensed a, a kindred spirit, or did he just like you all? Well, it's pretty hard not to like Marvella wherever she came from, but the fact that she was out in the plains and the southwest along with him. Uh, but I think uh, the vice president, um, uh, I think, took the young people. He had two young daughters. At the same time, you were developing uh, a friendship with Joan and Ted Kennedy. How did that happen? Well, that friendship really started probably before the... Uh, the Johnson encounter, I just met Ted in the hall, I think maybe as we were going into the vice president's office, whether he was coming out or not, I don't know. But I never got to know him, but we both were elected on the same day. We're both young people with good-looking wives, both um, fairly progressive in our thought processes and supported similar legislation, and liked each other's company. And so that was a development of a strong friendship that um, existed really till the day he died, although in the final years I, I hadn't seen him in a long time. How many people at that time uh, would you say maintained uh, a friendly, close relationship with Ted Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson at the same time? Well, I don't know. Um, I think Senator Kennedy went out of his way to, to develop that kind of relationship with Lyndon Johnson. Um, as is often the case, the principals can get along. It's the supporters that you have the warring camps. Mm -hmm. And it's difficult for the supporters to get together and be collegial with one another. But I, I never heard Ted Kennedy say anything bad about Lyndon Johnson. When you arrived in the Senate, uh, it really was entry into that club uh, with so many historic names, uh, Sam Irvin, Tom Dodd, Estes Kefauver. Uh, how has the Senate changed from then until today? Well, I can remember well how it was. And as you pointed out, you, there were some very statuesque kind of personalities, uh, household names, Estes Kefauver had been an idol of mine when I was involved in politics because he took on the establishment. Mm -hmm. He even took on President Truman. Yes. And I, not that I had anything against President Truman, but to admire somebody that has the courage of his convictions to 
uh, to do things that he thinks are right. Here I was on the Judiciary Committee uh, with him. Uh, Senator Dodd, I was on the Juvenile Delinquency Subcommittee, and he was the chairman of that. Nithis Kefauver very inconveniently died, which I, uh, I think the first speech I made um, after I came to the Senate outside of Indiana was in Knoxville, Tennessee, where Estes Kefauver had come down to my office. Said, he picked up and called, where you want to come see? I said, Mr. Senator, I'll be glad to come see you. No, I have a woman by the name of Dumpster. I want her to see you. Well, this was a wife, I forget her first name, of the Dempster, Dempsey Dumpster, the, the trash thing, yes. and he'd made a fortune with that. And she was the uh, head of the state uh, women's club in Tennessee, and they wanted me to come down, keynote an address for them. So we drove that, flew down there together, and spent the evening together, and came back together. So I, I really was. Uh, I mourned his passing because we developed a closer relationship, closer than you ever can imagine getting to a man that that's that important. But we had strong personalities there. Ever Dirksen, um, he and I became close friends. Why he took a liking to me, I don't know. But here he was, the ranking Republican in, on the committee, the Judiciary Committee, and the whole Senate. And for him to sort of take me under his wing, I thought, this is most unusual. It would never happen today, I think. Uh, it's pretty hard for me to judge, and I think I'm wrong to try to judge what's happening now and compare it to what happened that was yesterday. Uh, it's clear if everything I read about uh, and see in the news is true, there isn't a whole lot of cordiality across the lines. Like, uh, I could be close to Jerry Ford and Everett Dirksen people like that, um, Ed Brooke, uh, Republicans, and if you had a common purpose, um, you'd work together. I don't know that there's a single idea that I ever saw while I was in the state legislature or in the, uh, uh, in the Senate where there was a D answer or an R answer. There was a problem, and nobody has a magic uh, solution, a magic solution. And if you put all the heads together, uh, my granddad used to have a say, saying, the two heads are better than one, even if one is a cabbage head. <laughs> and I think in this relationship, I would be the cabbage head. But anyhow, we were able to reach out across the, the, the party lines. And uh, whatever success I may have had in the Senate, it's because I had strong support among my colleagues in the Democratic Party and the Republicans as well. And uh, I didn't think that was unusual. Now, if somebody tries to do that, uh, they think he's maybe not, doesn't have it all put together right. Does it uh, romanticize things to say that that sounds better for the country? That sounds more practical, more able to, to move to decision than the gridlock we see today? Well, it would be rather modest to suggest that what we were doing was better then than it is now, but uh, you can sort of look at the results of what happened. We had no problem moving significant legislation. The only time there was a filibuster, well, there were a couple of times there was a filibuster. One, the Civil Rights Bill was a major issue where you had people in their heart and soul were against one another on that issue. Mm -hmm. And it never, um, affected personalities. 
mean, uh, Sam Irvin was the chairman of a couple of committees that I was a, uh, a junior member on, and I felt I had a close relationship with him. Yet, man, when it came to that issue, or he fought me tooth and tongue when we tried to keep, get the Equal Rights Constitutional Amendments passed, give women equal rights, and we were able to defeat him. The same with Senator Dirksen. I mean, um, the first time I went to pay my respects for him, well, I really I went to make sure that he was supporting our efforts. We'd passed the, uh, what turned out to be the 25th Amendment to the Constitution. It had passed the Senate and the House. The House had made some minor adjustments to it, and it came back uh, slightly amended, just insignificant amendments, but the Senate had to rule on that. And so we had to go to conference. And I, as the author of that bill, uh, was to chair this conference. I'd never chaired a conference report. Here we are dealing with a constitutional amendment. And Senator Dirksen was on the committee. And uh, I wanted to make sure he was with us supporting the Senate's position. He said, you know, you count on me to support. But I sat in his office, one of his outside offices, which is bigger than most offices. <laughs> <laughs> and there on his desk was covered with postcards this high. And I have to admit, I sort of snuck a peek at what those postcards were. They all were supporting the prayer amendment. Well, I didn't know what the prayer amendment was, but when I was talking about the constitutional amendment, uh, Dirksen said, well, you know, I'll support you on this, but but she said, what I hear from all over the country is people want this prayer amendment. And I said, Senator, you know, I promise you we'll have hearings on the prayer amendment. And we did at length. These were not personal prayers. These were prayers that had been mandated by the governments of New York, Pennsylvania, and Maryland that this is what you shall pray at this time every day. Mm. So it was a government prayer. And I didn't think that the government had any business with prayer. So that's why we took them on. I've heard it said that it wasn't uncommon in those days for people to fight, as you put it, tooth and tongue on the floor of the Senate and then gather at the end of the day for a drink with the people on the other side. Is that so? Yes. At the time, I didn't drink. So I wasn't in on this kitchen closet, the cabinet kind of thing that one of the, there was an office right off the Senate floor that uh, they would go there after well, not necessarily after, but <laughs> sometimes during, and you could t tell the effect of some of the libations <laughs> on occasion, but the, it was that degree of cordiality that uh, existed, which uh, I didn't know anything but that, and um, I was just fortunate to be there at that time. We've talked a little bit about the 25th Amendment, uh, which, as people now know, sets out the rules for presidential succession. Uh, you also uh, wrote the 26th Amendment, extending the voting age uh, to people who had reached their 18th birthdays. What was your thinking? Why, why was that? That was a big change for American society. Why did it need to be done then? Well, it may have been a change for American society. It wasn't a, a change for me because uh, when I was in the legislature, Long before there was a war in Vietnam, I tried to amend the state constitution uh, to lower the voting age in Indiana. I was unsuccessful. We got it passed, both houses, 
one time but failed on the second time. It needs to pass twice. So I was committed to lowering the voting age when I came to the Senate. It seemed to me that was a logical extension of that interest to try to do it at the national level if you can do it at the state level. Really, it shouldn't be done state by state. It'd be a hodgepodge of things. We had Kentucky and Georgia at the time that had a lower voting age. The rest of the states had 21. And so it seems to me the logical way to do that was to amend the Constitution, so that's what we undertook. At, at that particular time, the driving force behind the 26th Amendment was the fact that we had a war going on where you had young men giving their lives in a battle that they couldn't even vote for the people that sent them there, which was a real injustice. I think without that, uh, we probably wouldn't have been successful in getting two-thirds. But as I mentioned earlier, I was for lowering the voting age for other reasons long before that. I mean, I felt young people, when they get to be 21, many of them are married, most all of them have jobs, they're paying taxes, they are fulfilling all of the responsibilities of citizenship, or they should have the right to vote. I don't think that the um, qualification to vote necessarily gets better as one goes along. You have a basic right to certain things. You may be better qualified. You may know more how to exercise that right as you go along. The question is, do you meet the basic standard necessary to get that right? And I think if a young person is old enough to be paying taxes, a lot of these kids are going to school. They're married while they're at school. Uh, they're having to work maybe one or two jobs. Um, so they are really, um, and obviously they're serving in the military. Uh, those things are responsibilities that um, it seems to me with those responsibilities uh, you have the right to have some voice in determining what those policies are. Let's move on to uh, what arguably was your greatest uh, effect on through legislation and on the country, Title IX. What, what keyed your interest in the Title IX? A 19-year-old wheat farmer daughter, uh, Marvella Hearn, who I met at a speech contest in Chicago talking about the stars getting together, the, the Almighty having both of us in the palm of his hand, where there we were competing. She was from Oklahoma, I was from down southern Indiana. I think she went on to win that speech she competition. She won the contest, but I won the girl. <laughs> <laughs> Nine months later we were married, but I remember uh, shortly after we were meeting, I and mean, before the contest. Uh, as soon as I met her, I said, well, why do we have lunch while we're waiting? And uh, so we had lunch together, and she described her life um, for me. Uh, the only girl that had ever been elected president of the student body at Garfield High School in Indian, Oklahoma, straight-A student, governor of Girls' Nation in Oklahoma, president of governor of Girls' State in Oklahoma, president of Girls' Nation, got President Truman's autograph in the Rose Garden between her junior and senior year in high school. I mean, this young lady had done everything possible for a human being, girl or boy, male or female. Her dream in life was to go to the University of Virginia. Her application was returned, women need not apply. In those words? Yes, short and simple. And unfortunately, that was a policy that had been following followed by a lot of uh, premier uh, institutions of higher education in the country. And many of them that did let women in 
would consign them to strict uh, so-called women's curriculum of teaching or nursing. So this was going on, and here was a young woman who, for the first time in her life, had been denied an opportunity to do what she wanted to do, not because she wasn't qualified, but because of her sex. So with our marriage, I inherited that desire. I realized what discrimination was. I didn't know what discrimination was. I was reared by two grandparents, a 80-year-old grandmother who was about five feet tall, who was a school marm, and uh, uh, she had as much say about running that farm as her husband did, my granddad. Discrimination was never a word in my mind. And, um, and Marvella opened my eyes uh, to that. And I think without her, I wouldn't have been uh, that uh, aware of it. Once you're aware of it, and once we started holding um, hearings on the Equal Rights Amendment, it was clear to me that the greatest, the most egregious problem confronted by young women and not so young women in our country was being denied full educational opportunity. And now I've, I've been blessed in later life to have another wonderful wife, Kitty, who was a professional woman when we were married. And she gave me some idea of what it was like to be a professional woman in a man's world. The d discrimination does not stop in the, in the universities and, and at, at the lower level. Once you're in the, the uh, old boy's world of a pension and uh, all uh, the uh, chauvinistic financial things that people would be sued for right now, it went on with impunity. So Kitty gave me a PhD, Marvella <laughs> gave me an undergraduate, and uh, Kitty gave me a graduate degree in uh, discrimination. At the time Title IX was proposed, was it a tough sell in the, in the halls of Congress? There were some who never would be believers. Um, but I think most of the Senate, uh, once they got uh, uh, the full complexion, of discrimination, most of them were just like I was. They weren't aware of it. It wasn't they intentionally discriminated, but they were just part of the system that discriminated. And when we first tried to put Title IX on the Higher Education Act, as the record shows, somebody got up who was against it and, and moved a point of order that you couldn't put this bill dealing with sex equality on a higher education bill because the bill itself did not contain the word sex. Well, what a ludicrous kind of thing to say that you can't deal with discrimination in higher education because of this parliamentary uh, flaw, so to speak. Mm -hmm. We lost that parliamentary vote by one vote, and then we came back the next year and put it on legislation in itself so we didn't have to worry about amending anything. I think the package was equality. What were the component parts of it? I don't think we all recognized in other areas as well, but athletics is one I don't think we recognize the impact. Um, I was very comfortable with that. Now, I had to confess to you that when we were, when I, I just speak for myself, and I think it, I constitute 99% of the Senate, when we originally passed Title IX, we were concerned about education, the academic 
contribution that Title IX would make. I believe that although the girls playing soccer, I read the front page of the sports page today coming in, two stories on the front page, both about women's activities. And man, when you make the sports page with the women's activities, that, the sports page, I thought, was the last vestige of male chauvinism. And when I read the headlines of scores of women's games, that we, we finally arrived. But we thought academics was the, really the only thing we were thinking about at the time. And if you look at reality, academics is where it's made the greatest contribution. You know, the number of women have gone from in the 30s initially as college graduates and now they're in the low 50s, commensurate of a 52 or 3 percent, the same percentage of women in the population generally, which is what it should be. The number one contribution of Title IX is giving women the intellectual capacity to provide for themselves and their families. That is still the major contribution. Athletics is also a contribution but I think it's secondary to the academic end of it. But if you look at it, I mean, look, the record is clear. I mean, we've had to defend uh, some of the equality of, of um, athletic programs against those who feel that uh, whether it's the women shouldn't have a right to sport as a flat, but really it's the women shouldn't have a right to take dollars away from the men's sports like football and other kinds of things. So that's where the battle really, how you, how you allocate a limited amount of resources. If you look, at the impact of athletics of young women on their lives and their personalities, you find that women that participate in athletics, there's less smoking, less use of drugs, fewer unwanted pregnancies, fewer truancies. You find young women understanding the importance of hard work because you can't succeed on the athletic field unless you work hard. The same in the classroom, you have to work hard. They learned the value of cooperation. They learned the value of leadership. All those ingredients which go beyond the traditional sweating on the athletic field, but make up a personality of a woman well-educated that has all of these other important elements of her, her composition, her character, that makes it possible for her to succeed in life. So the impact of Title IX is, is multifaceted. Academically, sports-wise, the two are interrelated. Looking Forgive at me that, for getting on my soapbox. As you, you can tell I feel rather strongly about that issue. I can. Uh, looking at, at that effect on American society, almost top to bottom, what would Marvella think? to know about that. Bring my relish, she said, don't stop. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. On this episode, we're featuring an interview with former Indiana Senator Birch Bayh, recorded in 2010. Bayh died earlier this week at the age of 91, he spoke with Radio TV Executive Director Perry Metz. And one of the things I, I wanted to ask you about uh, was the Senate Judiciary Committee. Wasn't it unusual for a freshman to be appointed? You talked about Lyndon Johnson taking a direct role, but freshmen didn't often get on the Judiciary Committee, did they? 
Well, Senator Kennedy did. I think he got on there that first year. And the answer to your question is no, it doesn't happen very often, or yes, it's unusual. Um, and, you know, I, I get the two um, committees I wanted. Now, if you're dreaming of all dreams, you'd want to be on appropriations, but I knew that was impossible. The next best thing was public works, which made it possible for me to get dollars back to Indiana. I had uh, been in the state legislature, and we would had, had authorized at the state level four large Army Corps reservoirs. But you had to get federal authorization to go along. More importantly, you had to get federal dollars. But I knew on the Public Works Committee, you're in a position of really moving those to the place that you sort of have to fund them. So that was a, that was a uh, committee for help back home. And all those reservoirs, I think, constitute not only flood control, but recreation, water supply. Uh, and uh, I don't look at this as, a, as, as fat. Um, some people may call it uh, fat in the budget, but if you go out there and see those uh, reservoirs and the water supply and the, the way people are enjoying them, you see this is really putting the taxpayers' dollars to good work. So the uh, public works request was a practical one, but the judiciary was your, your personal interest. One of its major responsibilities is uh, consideration of nominees to the Supreme Court. Yes, it is. So in 1969, there was uh, a vacancy on the court. President Nixon nominated uh, Clement Hainsworth and subsequently Harold Carswell, both of whom you opposed. I wonder if you could tell us what is the difference between the advice and consent of the Senate and uh, deliberation and partisan opposition to a Supreme Court nominee? I think the advice and consent should be just that advice and consent as to whether this judge is qualified to be on the court. It isn't designed to accomplish a political goal. Some people may use it for that reason, or because of their political inclinations may take a position on the issue. But the advice and consent means that Congress should use its wisdom, as the Constitutional Fathers mandated, uh, to help play a role in the choice of uh, key players, members of the cabinet, other administrative uh, offices, and of course the Supreme Court of the United States. And um, this was a totally new experience to me. Uh, it had been a generation or so b earlier, a judge in West Virginia had, find, had been uh, opposed but this is something that I never thought I would ever do in my whole life. I mean, uh, I just happened to be there, and it came along. Clement Hainsworth was a decent fellow. I think he was uh, qualified to be a good judge. He served on the Fourth Circuit, and I had no problem with him um, being on the Fourth Circuit. The question is whether he should be on the Supreme Court of the United States. And one of the things he had done as a judge was to sit and vote on a case that involved the textile workers uh, trying to organize the textile mills in, uh, in Atlanta, I think it was, in, in Georgia. And this was probably the hottest legislative, uh, I mean, labor management issue at the time. Hainsworth 
had voted against the workers' right to organize. It later came out that he owned a significant amount of, uh, well, his family owned a Vendomatic company that provided uh, several million dollars worth of business strictly for the textile industry. So he had his family, and he had a pecuniary interest in what went on in the te textile industry. He was on the board of this uh, company. His wife had been secretary, was secretary of this. Uh, so he was intimately involved, and his family were intimately involved in running this company. The sole business was being supported by the textile workers using the Vendomatic machines in the companies. And um, that seemed to me to be a conflict of interest. And um, uh, the, the labor people were the ones that got me interested in it. I, I really, I wasn't interested in it. They wanted me to at least ask them questions. So I remember getting a phone call in the middle of the night. I happened to be in London from my administrative assistant saying, we have to give these people a, an answer. Can you, can you ask the questions or not? And I said, well, okay, tell them I'll ask the questions. But they need to understand that as far as my norm, normal position on this, I think the president has a strong uh, inference of, um, of support uh, for our nomination when it comes to the advice and consent process. That had been traditionally what it was until that time. And when I got to asking the questions, unfortunately, uh, Judge Hainsworth had the uh, wrong answers um, from my perspective. And we found out there was a Supreme Court case called the Commonwealth Coding Case, where on a nine to zero vote, the court had ruled that a judge should recuse himself uh, from any issue where his pecuniary interest is much smaller than Judge Hainsworth's interest was. So it was rather clear that the court had decided that he should have recused himself. Not that he should step off the court, but you just don't vote on something in which you have a pecuniary interest. Let me uh, follow up uh, just a bit on the idea of admitting a mistake in public life. And this may be a, a leap, but I'm, I'm interested in your opinion. That was the nominee of Richard Nixon. And of course, uh, four years later, he was to resign as President of the United States. If President Nixon had come on television and acknowledged early on his role in Watergate and said that he had made a mistake, not unlike his Checkers speech in the 50s, if he had said, I made a mistake, I, I had a lapse in judgment, I won't let it happen again and I apologize, would he have survived as President? And I want the American people to know that I've learned my mistake, mistake and I won't make it again. Absolutely. Absolutely. I remember Marvella and I were going to a, um, a dinner at the F Street Club. And they were going to have televisions available in this uh, luxurious little dining room, not so small, but anyhow, so we could hear the President's speech. And she said, honey, what do you think he's going to say? And I said, I don't know, honey, but I hope he tells it all. Because I think there's a lot of forgiveness out there in the minds of the American people. If he doesn't tell it all, the press has enough right now 
They're like bloodhounds on the trail. They'll find out stuff we don't even know about. And he'll go down. And I hope he does the right thing. He didn't. Your president's not a crook. I know why he was saying he was a crook, but he certainly had tolerated a lot of things and was aware of a lot of things that he should have prohibited. But that's um, the answer to your question is, yes, I think he would have survived. We're taping this on the day after a new Gallup poll has shown that uh, six in ten Americans say the government has too much power and nearly half say that the federal government poses an immediate threat to the rights and freedom of ordinary citizens. A time of very high distrust in government. What's the way out of that for the country? I don't know. You describe the situation exactly as it is. It didn't just happen today. What we're dealing with right now are problems that were created uh, previously during the Bush administration that the Obama administration is trying to unravel. Uh, this terrible decline that recession started uh, back when the banks failed in the previous administration. And I don't know how President Obama has been able to survive as long as he has. And because it's a constant drumbeat, the man, when he goes to bed at night, I don't know how he sleeps. Um, I think um, you don't restore public confidence by taking a pill. I think it's sort of like <laughs> I have a penchant for trying to stay in some degree of physical shape. You don't start with 20 push-ups at a time. You start with one. Mm -hmm. And so I think it is with how we restore the confidence of the American people. I think the president is the one voice who uh, can do more than any other. My concern is that the politics of the situation are such that the opposition wants the problem, not the solution. How you deal with that, I don't know. I can't advise the president what to do. I, I think he is trying. It has to start somewhere. It has to start a step at a time, a vote at a time, an amendment at a time. Like many interviewers, I've saved uh, one of the tougher questions for late in the game. Looking at your life, you have had uh, more than two acts. Uh, you were a farmer. You were a 4-H leader and competitor, uh, small town boy from Shirkyville. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You were Speaker of the House at a very young age. You were a United States Senator, uh, a product of Indiana. And then after the Senate, you assumed a, a whole different life inside the Beltway. Uh, how did you make those transitions in your life? Well, I wasn't a Lone Ranger. I had um, a lot of support in the process. My primary ability to um, adjust from the farm, 
uh, was directly related to the ability of Marvella and me together to work as a team. From the beginning, when I first ran, when we first ran for the state legislature, that's the way I always phrase it, because we ran. We called on precinct committeemen in our county that had never been done before, the two of us knocking on the door, a young guy and a gal. Um, and when we got to the uh, legislature, she was my strongest confidant and best, most learned advisor of all of them. Um, you're not in a position where you can say that it's allowed that some of the other members don't think that you're relying on them, but uh, she knew where she was, and I knew where she was, and I think everybody else knew where she was. So I think that was a transition from the farm to the state legislature, to running for the Senate, to going back to law school almost on the spur of the moment, ended up being Speaker of the House in my second year of law school, all by accident. But Marvella was there every step of the way. Uh, the Speaker of the House does not normally vote for legislation in Indiana unless there's a tie. I only voted one time. There was an equal pay for equal work amendment for state employees. When the clerk tallied the roll before it was announced, there it was, 50 to 48. I said, the speaker votes aye, the bill passes. <laughs> and I looked at Marvella in the gallery. <laughs> <laughs> so she was a transition there and um, on through my life. Um, and it was a wonderful life. I was just a lucky guy. How it all happened, I don't know. And um, uh, when I was defeated, I didn't really spend a whole lot of time worrying because a part of my life I'd always wanted to have a law firm. In fact, when Marvell and I went back to law school, my dream was to be a litigator, come back to Terre Haute, have a Birch by law firm on the corner, right across from the courthouse, and litigate cases. Well, something got in the way. I was blessed, uh, here again, my accidental meeting with a sweet farmer's daughter in Oklahoma. I think the old man upstairs must have had me in the palm of his hand, or he put me next to Marvella. A generation later, I was invited to a, I think it was a White House press corps dinner where you have a thousand of your close personal friends, and this was the kind of thing that Marvella loved to do. She loved to get all dressed up, and I had to put on the text, but I did. We went along, and well, Marvella was no longer with me, so ABC had invited me. And I sent my regrets to ABC. And I got to thinking that uh, I had a new press secretary, Red Nation. Maybe if ABC would let me bring Fred instead of wife, he could begin to get familiar with these ABC people and begin to find the, how the land lay in uh, Washington as far as uh, being a press secretary. And I found myself sitting at the only vacant seat was next to this young woman who had it orchestrated the, she was in charge of news information for ABC Network, Kitty Halpin. And um, we ended up sitting out in, in front of the Capitol building and talking until 1 a.m. in the morning. Took her home, shook hands, went home, called her up on the phone, said I had a great evening. <laughs> I remember when she heard my voice, she said, 
how'd you get my phone number? <laughs> I said, well, have you heard of uh, information? And a couple of weeks later, we got together and we're inseparable then for two years. And she's, we've been married for 29 years. We have a wonderful 28-year-old son. And uh, she made it possible for me to go through the transition. I can't help but notice across 50 years, almost every time you did something, it wasn't acting unilaterally. You almost always seemed to have an alliance. You were running for legislature and uh, Marvella was your ally. Uh, you were in the Senate and you had a different ally on every bill. I, I know you were with Bob Dole on patent reform. Uh, some of them were Democrats, some were Republicans, some were senior, some were junior. Uh, your alliance with Kitty, it, it seems like the best description of a political animal for your whole life. You're absolutely right. Your observation is right on. If I haven't said it, I should have earlier. I've been blessed to be surrounded by people, not just two wonderful spouses, but how does a guy who is 30 years old get to be Speaker of the House in a legislature constituted by a majority of people who've never served in public life before, most of them old enough to be his father? How does that happen? Well, it happens by putting together a nucleus in the previous session where I got to be minority leader and keeping that nucleus together and making it a bigger. One, I like to make people feel good. I guess in the common sense, if you if you have a, a problem, it's sort of like a cable that supports a bridge. The more strands of wire, the more people you have involved, uh, the better off you are. And I was, I guess God gave me the understanding that this need to be done this way. I certainly always haven't been perfect at it. But if I may just interject this in there as a uh, example of how my life has been blessed by other people fortuitously, some totally unexpected, would help. We were taking on Carswell, who wasn't qualified to carry Clement Hainver's briefcase. I mean, he basically, um, when we got to find out, it was, it was a bad man. He was sitting on the Fifth Circuit. and. Uh, why President Nixon uh, supported him, you can only guess, because he was not nearly as qualified as Hainsworth was. If he'd done it the other way around, Hainsworth would have gone on the court. But a lot of the Republicans that we had to have who'd voted with us on Hainsworth had gone down to the White House and said, Mr. President, we can't be with you on this with you this time, but we'll be, with you. we'll be with you on the next one. And here came Carswell. And uh, there's just no way. I, they're just the stomach for a fight was. I got the troops together, and nobody really wanted to fight, except me. It's a long story. But the principal objection was a series of, of segregationist rulings. Yes. Plus, um, I mean, this fellow was a racist. He ran when he ran for the uh, legislature in Georgia at the age of 25. He said, "I yield to my no man and my belief in white supremacy." My early cadre of people, they said, well, you know, there's been a lot of change in the South, and 
none of us would really want to be responsible for what we said when we were 25. And they had sacrificed to get these laws passed. And there they could see somebody going on the Supreme Court that would take it away from them. And I just sensed this. And I made some remarks about you don't have faith if things will be worked out. And I don't know what I was talking about. I remember that night was one of the most uh, torturous nights of my life. Um, I lay in bed, I couldn't go to sleep, rolling and tossing about what I should do. I knew we didn't have a prayer winning this. And um, so the next morning I got my staff together and I said, okay, we're gonna mobilize the troops. We probably can get 25 people to stand up on this. And at least the people that care about it around the country know that 25 of us have enough conviction that we're with them. And I didn't think there was anything we could do. I mean, we had done everything there was to do. There just wasn't any stomach for that fight. And um, about that time, these Yale students and a professor, must have been seven of them, came to my office and said, what can we do to help? Well, frankly, I didn't think there was anything they could do to help, but I said, why don't you go back? You research every case he's decided. Examine every opinion that he's written and see what you find out. These kids did, these young people did exactly, and their professor did exactly what I asked. They looked at every word he'd written. The professor looked at these decisions. This fellow can't put two senses together. He's mediocre to say the most. Well, they came out with a decision. They backed away from, this is the Bar Association, they backed away from their initial support well, the press took that and ran with it. Mm -hmm. Front page story, Bar Association calls Carswell a mediocre judge. And they asked Roma Haruska, my friend from Nebraska on the Judiciary Committee, Senator Haruska, what do you think about this disclosure that Judge Carswell is mediocre? <laughs> well, you know, there are a lot of mediocre people in America and they need representation <laughs> on the Supreme Court. <laughs> well, man, oh man. That, <laughs> that took off. That took a non-issue and made it front page. It made it the, the nightly news on television. They never let Roman back on the floor for the rest of that debate. God bless him for that. So um, what these young people had found out was a record that showed that here you had a 55-year-old man sitting on the Fifth Circuit about to become a justice of the Supreme Court who had the same thoughts at 55 that he had when he was 25. So we were able to tie those early segregationist views to a real live sitting judge. And we got 51 votes. 51 only. 51 only. But we wouldn't have done it without these few young people who wanted to know what they could do to help the process. I don't know how often I tell that story to young people to let them know it really makes a difference what they do. And that's one thing I want young people, well, I want older people, but young people as they come along, the world is so big, the problems are so complicated, how can I make a difference? Well, find a way you can. I can't speak to who's there now, but I would like to believe that once you scratch the surface, you'll find the same thing that I can testify to that most of the people I had the privilege of serving with, Republican and Democrat, were good, honest, dedicated people 
that wanted to do what was right. They had differing views as to what was right and what was wrong. But that's what makes America. Mm -hmm. How you take divergent views, meld them together, and get a policy that's in the national interest. I think the country is less certain that everybody wants to do the right thing anymore. I think they look at their, uh, at their senators, tend to have a higher view of their own senators, but a little suspicion about all the others, and a little less faith. You know, you hit a point. I was talking to one of our fellows over here, he said, who's our poll giver? Knows exactly what he thinks is going to happen. And usually he's right. But if you take the polls, you hit on the right point. The vote is no, I don't like what Congress is doing. Two, yes, I support my congressman. The system needs to be personalized more. There needs to be more retail politics and less wholesale politics. Mm. It needs to be more personal. Because I, I like to think that those same people who think our country, government isn't working, in the quiet of their solitude before going to sleep at night, but thank God for being American, because with all our faults, uh, I can't think of any other place that I'd rather live or a large majority of Americans would rather live. We appreciate your talking with us today. It's been a very interesting discussion. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Do you think you're going to get me to shut up? <laughs>